This morning's scripture passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Good morning. Hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. We're all on a journey of faith. And the journey of faith can be exhilarating, can be exciting, challenging, tedious, hard. It's like a hike up a mountain where maybe you have level places and in the meadows, it's nice, it's great, this is wonderful. And then you have some really rocky areas that are tough going. It can get hard. You see, to trust God, to walk with him by faith, means that he's in control and we're not. Our job is to keep our eyes on him and keep following him, but he doesn't always lead us in ways that are easy. A great picture of the journey of faith is given in Numbers chapter 9, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they're following the cloud and the pillar of fire. It says, whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterwards the son of Israel would set out in the place where the cloud settled down, they would camp. At the command of the Lord, they would set out. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If it remained a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If it remained only from evening till morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they would set out. You get the point? (laughs) See, God has a mind of his own. You never know where he'll lead you. He may lead you in some exciting new direction or he may keep you in the desert for years. He's God and we are not. 
But for many of us, there gets to be a point where we get tired of that life of faith, trying to keep our eyes on an invisible God and follow him. And sometimes his plan just doesn't seem to fit our plan for our lives. And that's when we get into trouble. Because we start to put our plans, our ideas before him. I found that most of us have kind of a picture in the wall of our minds of what we think our life should be. We think that needs to happen for us to be happy or successful in life. The trouble is God has a different plan. And those come in conflict and we struggle with that. We get upset when his plan's different than ours. And so we get into trouble when we start putting our plan above his. Why? Because we're made, we're created to walk with him. That's where life is for us. And yes, it's uncertain at times. Yes, it's scary at times, but it's life with him. It's life. You see, anything else than walking with him will eventually lead to frustration spiritual depression, and ultimately what the Bible calls spiritual death. Well, the Israelites are, I think, in that place. They're feeling that tension in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. They've apparently decided that the life of faith is just too hard, too uncertain. It doesn't fit their plan. And I think they're a perfect example of you and me when we struggle with that as well. Let's pray together, and then let's look at 1 Samuel 8. Lord, we admit that uh, your plan, your way, is often so much bigger than we can see, and it doesn't make sense sometimes. So to keep trusting you is hard. Our, Our plans seem more rational. Lord, teach us from this passage as we consider the Israelites as they demand a king. Reveal our own hearts so we can submit more fully to you, to surrender all to you, and experience the exhilaration of that life of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as David read, the passage begins with Samuel being old. (laughs) And he appointed his sons over Israel, as judges, as leaders over Israel. Samuel is one of the greatest leaders of Israel, maybe the greatest one up to this point, except for maybe Moses. He did many things right. He led Israel in a great victory over the Philistines in just chapter 7. We saw that last week. How did he do that? He led them in a worship service. (laughs) And God's power defeated the Philistines. It's amazing. Amazing picture. The power of God was released. The enemy was defeated. And Israel experienced a time of blessing from the Lord and freedom like they had not had for hundreds of years. But now it's perhaps guessing 20 years later. Samuel's gotten old. The people have kind of gotten into a routine. And... They're beginning to see that Samuel's getting old and he's appointed his sons as judges foolishly because it's clear, the text says, they were out for violent gain. They took bribes. They twisted judges. 
They were terrible leaders. They couldn't be trusted. They were power hungry. They were literally evil men. Sad, sad picture. Now, I think Samuel had a hint of that. I think he knew that because it says he appointed them as judges in Beersheba. If you know anything about the the geography of Israel, way up in the north is Galilee, in the center, Jerusalem, in that area. And Beersheba is way in the south. It is in the desert. It's in, on the road to nowhere. <laughs> so Samuel appointed his sons as judges, as leaders, but in Beersheba. I think he knew they shouldn't get too close to where things really happened. But the elders are beginning to worry. You know, they're taking a look around and they're seeing this crisis now, okay? Samuel's getting old. Who's going to lead us then? What's going to happen? These guys are not good guys. And if they're all we have to lead us, then we are in big trouble. So the elders, the leaders of Israel, come up with the solution. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. You see, the leaders of Israel are right to be concerned, aren't they? I mean, we, we don't want these guys to lead us. They'll just get us into more trouble. We've, we've been that route. We've had those kinds of leaders. We don't want to go that way anymore. So the right to be concerned. But their solution is to come up with their own plan rather than to go to the Lord. In his autobiography, Eugene Peterson talks about being a new pastor. Eugene Peterson, who wrote The Message, a number of great other books. This is his autobiography. He talks about being a new pastor who was, by his denomination, sent out to plant a church. So he headed out. It says, One of my assigned duties as an organizing pastor was to provide a monthly report to the office. I was glad to do it. I owed the institution a lot. They were paying for me to develop a congregation. So this report went out monthly. The first page was statistical. The number of home visits I made, how many people attended, financial report, etc., The second page, and from there following, was pages of personal and theological reflection on my pastoral work. It was him sharing his heart and what he was really going through in the ministry. Well, he worked hard on these reports every month. But he says, after a year or so of doing this without any response from the office, sharing some very personal things, I started to wonder if my denominational superiors were reading past the first page of statistics. I thought I would test out my suspicion and have a little fun on the side. (laughs) So the next month, after compiling the statistical data, I slipped another sheet of paper into my typewriter and described as best I could what seemed to be a long, slow slide into depression. I had difficulty sleeping. I couldn't pray. Could you recommend a counselor for me? Getting no response, I upped the ante. The next month, I developed a drinking problem (laughs) that became evident one Sunday in the pulpit. Everybody was very understanding, but one of the elders had to complete the sermon. I think I need treatment. Are there any funds available? 
Still no response. I got bolder. <laughs> the next month, I cooked up an affair. <laughs> it started innocently enough as I was attempting to comfort a woman through an abusive marriage, but something happened along the way. We ended up in bed together. Only it wasn't bed, it was one of the church pews. <laughs> Where we, where we were discovered when the ladies arranging flowers for Sunday worship walked in on us. I thought it was all over for my ministry at that point, but it turned out in this community, swingers are very much admired. The next sun, Sunday, attendance doubled. Well, this reporting turned into a gala event one day each month in our house, <laughs> making up new stories. He also told one about uh, how he decided to have some new innovations in the liturgy. He had heard about a cult in Palestine that used mushrooms in their worship services. So I arranged for one of our college kids going to Mexico on spring break to purchase some psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> when he returned with them, I introduced them at the next celebration of the Eucharist. It was the most terrific experience anybody had ever had in worship. <laughs> Absolutely dazzling. Well, anyway, these sport report writing days were getting to be a lot of fun. Kept going for three years, never got a response. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we feel like God is sort of like those supervisors. You know, all he's worried about is the first page, the statistics. How many people have you shared Christ with? How have you done with this or this or that? But as to what's really going on in our hearts, he doesn't even read it. He's too busy. He doesn't have time because he doesn't seem to care. And so we start thinking, God's not coming through for me. He's not really there for me. And so I need to come up with my own plan to deal with life. That's exactly, I think, where... Israel was at this point. We don't have a leader. Samuel's almost gone, so we need to come up with something. So they make a plan that seems right to them. Give us a king, like all the nations. They'd looked around. They'd seen how other nations, you know, they were, they were scattered tribes who rarely came together unless they had to. They were kind of doing each their own thing. And... They were looking at other nations who were beginning to have a consolidated leadership, full-time leadership, a king in a central location where all the power was consolidated in one man who would unite all the tribes of Israel. Now remember, the history of Israel was that whenever they cried out to God, whenever they humbled themselves, he provided a judge, a leader, to take care of them, to provide for them, to lead them in victory. But they had to trust God for that. But now they're thinking, you know, God, I don't know if we can trust you. This life of faith is a little uncertain. So we need a king. We need somebody who we can look to all the time to take care of us. God had been king. God had led the people through the judges, but it was a hard way to go. It was uncertain. You didn't always know what God was going to do. There were hard years in between when God raised up judges. You see, the life of faith, of trust, is hard sometimes, isn't it? It's uncertain. You don't really know what God's going to do because he is God and we're not. 
And so we begin to try to figure out a way to find security our way. You see, a king would give them a constant leader, a standing army, a chance to be like the other nations. From a human perspective, a more secure nation. But note the motivation. We want to be like the other nations. We want to be like everyone else. I think it's helpful at this point to think about what God's plan was for Israel. Remember back when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, called him forth, and he made several promises to him, and he said, I will make you a blessing to all the nations. I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you many descendants. But God's plan is that the people of God would be different than the world around them, would not be the same would not have the same kind of leadership because God is their king, God is their head, so that they could stand out and become a blessing to all the nations. But here they're saying, no, we don't want that. What does this mean? What does demanding a king represent? Well, down in verse 20, if you look with me there, the people say this, the end of verse 19, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us or lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see, demanding a king, I want a king, represents three things, three motivations we see in verse 20. First, is this tension we feel often as the people of God between blending in and standing out. We get tired of standing out. You know, it's like the old days in junior high. You remember junior high? We hated to stand out, right? You didn't want to be different. I remember when uh, some friends and I, it was 1970 or so, and, and the girls in our school were into maxi dresses. It was the era of maxi dresses, at least in our little town. And a bunch of us guys got together. We were just complaining about the fact that we were wearing maxi dresses. So we decided to get together and all wear knickers to school just to protest. Guess who's the only one who showed up in knickers that day? <laughs> Guess who hid behind every column? every desk, every locker he could find until he could get his mom to bring him some clothes, some regular jeans. You know, we hate to stand out. But as Christians, I see so many of us, and I think we all struggle with this at times, we don't want to stand out. We don't like being different. We go to work and, and we're, we're, we're pointed out as, as odd, as different, because we trust in another king, another God. They have their own gods they worship, but we, we live a different lifestyle. We're called to live differently, and we don't like that sometimes, and sometimes we just want to blend in. They want to be like the other nations around them. Secondly, they say, we want a leader to lead us. This is that tension between having a human leader to look to. There's security in, us, in that for us versus looking and to and following an invisible God. It's hard, isn't it, sometimes? And we feel a tension, and like Israel, sometimes we just want a human leader to follow. So we end up 
looking to some political leader or we exalt our pastors way above where they should be. They're just like everybody else. They just have a a gift of pastor-teacher, but that doesn't mean they're any better than anyone else. But we exalt them, and that's dangerous, folks. See, it's dangerous when we put anyone above God, and yet we're drawn to do that. I think the world is ripe right now. We're in a very dangerous place. There's economic uh, revolt everywhere, people concerned, and we're looking for someone to bring an answer. And if someone brings an answer, could easily be a worldwide leader who would provide that, an antichrist. Who knows? I don't know. But it comes largely out of this tendency of wanting someone to look to, somebody physical we can look to, rather than having to trust an invisible God. So Israel says, give us a king. Thirdly, they say, it'll be somebody who will fight our battles for us. We want somebody visible that we can trust in, something visible to put our security in versus God is my rock, God is my security, I will trust him. So we look for something to take care of us so we feel secure in life. It might be a bank account. It might be a political party. It might be certain things we have. It might be our home. It might be family. It might be a strong marriage. It might be the whatever. If we just have a standing army, we'll be okay. (laughs) If we just have something I can look to and say, ah, okay, now I'm secure, we'll be okay. But you see, all of these are a way of essentially demanding a king. I don't know if I can trust you, God. It's too scary. So give me someone or something I can trust in. So we are like Israel. We demand a king when we insist that God's not enough that we need God to provide a secure bank account, a Republican as president, a happy marriage, anything that we demand from God so we can be secure in life. Like the woman who came to me and said, my husband isn't loving me well, I demand a king. No, she didn't really say that. (laughs) But she did say, I demand that God change him and make him the husband he's supposed to be or I'm leaving. She demanded a king. Or when we say, life's too hard, it's too much of a struggle, God's taken me through this rocky ground and I don't really like it, and I demand a king. I demand that life get easier. Or I'm going to come up with my own plan. We demand a king when we decide, God, I don't know if I can trust you, my plan's better than yours, and I'm going to do what I can to implement it. What is God's response when we demand a king? Well, in verse 6 and following, I think you see God talking to Samuel and as Samuel prays to the Lord about this situation, notice the elders didn't pray to the Lord. They didn't seek him. They just came up with a plan. But Samuel prays to the Lord. And the Lord said, Listen to the voice of the people in regard they all to say to you because they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king like they always have all through history, he says. How does God respond when we demand a king? First of all, by grieving. He grieves that we're not trusting him. We're made to trust him. He knows it's not good for us when we don't. So first of all, he grieves. Because deep down they're saying, God, 
you're not good enough for us. We're forsaking you for another plan that looks better. So God makes it very clear when we demand a king, essentially we are rejecting him from being Lord, from being king. Now, what would have been a better response for the elders of Israel? Well, I think better response would have been to do what Samuel did, to turn to God in prayer and say, God, we're in trouble here. Samuel's not going to be around long and his sons are a mess. Lord, we, we want you to be our king. Lead us. How are you going to fix this? We are trusting you. But they don't even pray. It never works when we forsake God to make our own plan, yet we all, we all do it. You see, there is an alternative for us. We don't have to make our own plan when things don't go the way we want. We can turn to him in prayer and we can realize, Lord, I don't understand, but you died for me on the cross, Lord Jesus, and I can trust you. It's hard. Help me to trust you. Give me faith to hang on to you no matter what. I will not demand my way. I will cling to you. That's the life of faith he's called us to. Yes, it's scary but it's also exhilarating and exciting and it grows our relationship with him. It's a beautiful thing. I've only been sailing once. Some of you have probably been sailing a lot more, but I've only been sailing once, but it was, it really was an exhilarating experience. We were two of us in a really small sailboat. We're flying across this lake. The wind is blowing and, and your senses are attuned to everything. You, you have to keep, aware of how the wind is blowing the sail and you're, and you're watching how the shore is and where you are in relation to that and you're having to make sure you guide the sail and turn it in the proper way when you're going to turn around. And so it's exhilarating, but you know, you're probably going to get wet. It's scary at times. It's wild. But there's times that we say, you know what, I'd rather be on a cruise. I'd rather be in a place where, you know, the water's way down below me. It's not scary. Everybody takes care of me, brings me food, all these fun things I can do, and no stress. I'm not saying cruises are a bad thing, (laughs) but if that's the way you live your Christian life, I think that may be a problem. Israel is choosing the cruise ship. May we not choose the cruise ship. May we choose the sailboat. So how does God respond next? First, he grieves. Secondly, he warns them of the consequences of their choice. Samuel spoke all the words, verse 10, of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He said, this will be the way of the king or the procedure of the king who will reign over you. Listen carefully for the word take. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing, to reap his harvest, to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks 
and you yourselves will become his servants, his slaves. In other words, he will enslave you in the end. (laughs) See, a king, if you move to a central government, if that's what you're looking to for leadership, that creates a bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy has to be supported. has to be supported by people, has to be supported by finances and food and all those things. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, you really want a king? This is the cost for you. He will take from the things that are most dear to you, including your own children. And in the end, he will take your freedom. You yourself will be enslaved. It's, it's easy to put our hope in something other than God. But I think what God's making very clear is anytime you demand a king, you think this king is going to serve you and make your life better, he ends up taking from you, including taking your freedom, and you become enslaved to it. Whatever it is, whether it's a government system or a political leader or financial success, whatever it might be, Yes, we're called to be good citizens of America, but we are not to put our hope there. We will be let down. (laughs) We're citizens of a whole other kingdom, folks. We're strangers and aliens on earth. We are citizens of another kingdom with a different king. And the life of faith means we trust him. We put our hope in him. Our security is in him. If we insist on being like all the nations, putting our hope in man then God says you will lose out. It will be taken from you and you will be enslaved. In other words, whenever we demand a king, we eventually will get enslaved by that king. Whatever we put our hope in besides God, it will eventually enslave us. It will take our freedom because it will be a God, but not a God like Yahweh, a God that will use and abuse us. So God warns them, Israel, don't do this. Don't give in. Let me be your king. But what's their response? Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, (laughs) no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us or lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. They insist on their plan even after all the warnings. Isn't that interesting? It really shows the issue here is not rational so much. It's moral. It's. I really want to run life, my life, my way. I want to be in charge. And if I submit to you, I don't know what you're going to do with my life. That's scary for me. So I'd rather live by my plan, even if it turns out bad. Foolish. That's so foolish. And yet, it's the story of every one of us at times in our lives. We want life our way. And the life of faith is scary. 
So how does God respond to that? Their rejection. Verse 21 and 22. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen or obey their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. God's words here I think are scary. Go. Give them what they want. Yeah, they're going to experience all the consequences of that, but give them what they want. When we insist on our own way, when we demand a king, and we refuse to trust God even when he warns us, then he will often give us what we want. So we'll have to face the consequences of that. So we'll be brought to our knees as we experience the pain and the failure of that and perhaps be driven back to him. That's how severe his love can be sometimes because our hearts are so hard that he gives us what we want so we'll experience the consequences of that so we will see how much we need him. One of the great passages that reflects this, of course, is the parable of the prodigal son. The father loves his son dearly, and the son comes and says, I demand a king. (laughs) I demand my inheritance. I want it now, which was essentially saying, Dad, I want you dead. I wish you were dead so I could have my way. And the father, what does he do? He should have punished him severely, but what does he do? He gives him his inheritance. He lets him go and experience the consequences of that choice as he lived a wasted, broken, awful life. It was a sign of the father's love that he did that, but then he watched. (laughs) And as soon as the son was broken and came stumbling home, the father ran to meet him. What a picture of God's love waiting for us to come back to give up the pigsty that we've chosen for ourselves and just come back to him and experience his love and begin to walk by faith again. Be willing to trust him. This passage in Samuel instituted 500 years of them having a king. Most of those kings were terrible evil. There were a few good kings. Most of them brought nothing but heartache to the people and brokenness. But in God's grace, those failed kings pointed the way to the true king, the Messiah who was to come. And they waited another 500 years for that king to come, but he has come the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is here and he is a king that is worth following and worth trusting. None of the other things that we demand are worth following. But the one who died for us, who gave his life for us, is just waiting for us to come back, stumbling along in our brokenness. And he will come running to embrace us and bring us back. He is the true king, the humble king, the loving king. So Israel blew it for many, many years. We have a chance to live differently, folks, as the people of God today.
to be people who walk that trail that's scary sometimes, but following our king, trusting him, riding his sailboat, (laughs) keeping our eyes on Jesus and trusting him to lead us in this wild and crazy, exhilarating, scary journey of faith he's called us to. Let's pray. Lord, we can relate to Israel. Our plans sometimes seem so much better than yours. Or we don't even know your plan sometimes. You don't give us your plan all the time. But you do give us yourself. And Lord, help us by faith to trust you, walk with you, follow you, so that we might be the people of God who bring blessing to the world around us because we are the people of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.